You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am super excited to bring to you uh, as a special episode with uh, Dr. Rita Doust. Uh, she is an Associate Professor and Associate Dean for Teaching and Learning at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing and holds a joint appointment in the School of Medicine, Department of General Internal Medicine, Dr. Doust has served from the sidelines as a spouse and family member for military service members and veterans, and as a nurse practitioner caring for veterans in community settings. She has made significant contributions to educate nurses caring for veterans. She served as the co-director for the Veterans Affairs Nursing Academy and subsequent Veterans Affairs Nursing Academic Partnership at James A. Haley Veterans Hospital and University of South Florida. Her research contributions to the impact of military service on veterans' health include the use of novel therapy, accelerated resolution therapy to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in homeless veterans, PTSD secondary to military sexual trauma, and the incidence of fibromyalgia symptomology in community dwelling women veterans. Dr. Douse has mentored numerous doctoral students on policy issues for veterans, nurse practitioner roles in veterans care and quality improvement initiatives in VA settings. Dr. Douse is a fellow in the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners, the National Academies of Practice and the American Academy of Nursing. Also with us today, Dr. Alicia Gill Rossiter, uh, she is a family and board certified pediatric nurse practitioner and an associate professor at the University of South Florida College of Nursing, where she serves as the director of the Veterans 2BSN program, as well as the master's and DMP program. She currently serves as the chief officer of military and veteran affairs. Dr. Rossiter served in the United States Army Nurse Corps, which included a combat deployment during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and also served in the United States Air Force Reserve until she retired in 2015. Her military experience has been the impetus behind her research and scholarly work, which includes women's veterans and military sexual trauma, the effects of parental military service on military-connected children, and transitioning needs of medics and corpsmen into the professional role of nursing. Dr. Rossiter's groundbreaking work with accelerated resolution therapy for military sexual trauma led to the integration of this treatment into the Department of Defense PTSD treatment protocols and inclusion as trauma-based therapy for PTSD in the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration National Registry of Evidence-Based Program and Practices. Dr. Rossiter is a fellow in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and the American Academy of Nursing, 
where she currently serves as a chair of the American Academy of Nursing, Military, and Veterans Health Expert Panel. Dr. Dallas and Dr. Rossiter are both authors and editors of a brand new book, Caring for Veterans and Their Families, a guide for nurses and healthcare professionals. Dr. Dallas and Dr. Rossiter's full bios and links to resources can be found on the RN Mentor podcast website. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dallas and Dr. Rossiter. Well, hello there. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, hey. thank you so much for uh, inviting us. Yes, thank you for accepting. I know you, you're both uh, super busy, and I'm so excited that uh, we have an opportunity to talk and about not only your careers and the work that you've been doing with the with the veteran and veterans health community, uh, but also uh, your brand new book, uh, which I'm excited that it's coming out. Uh, and actually, it's going to come out the day we share this podcast. So I'm excited about that. Um, so we'll start with one of the, you know, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that I get you both individually so I can dive deep into both your individual careers. But I'm going to start with how did you two uh, meet then form this partnership? Because I know a lot of the veteran work and veterans health education work that you've done with, the nur- with nursing and veterans have been in partnership. So we'll start with Dr. Doust uh, and, and how did you two meet and get started in this coll- on, this, on these collaborations that you've done over years? Well, first of all, um, Ali, I wanna thank you as chapter uh, author in the book that you did not say and your incredible <laughs> expertise and contribution. So be- before we go any further, really have to acknowledge and thank you. Thank uh, you. And, and really uh, incredible, incredible expertise and also commitment that you have. Um, Alicia and I met uh, 10, 11 years ago and uh, I had accepted a position at the University of South Florida. Um, as the academic dean and actually was at a conference for the American Association of Nurse Practitioner when one of my faculty colleagues um, mentioned to me, hey, you know, Alicia was walking by, I wanna introduce you to someone. And that was Alicia. And I think Alicia will tell the story then of how she ended up at USF other than I think I reached out and said, you need to come teach here. And one of the pieces that at that time was as we were building programs at the University of South Florida and other components was this real kindred spirit is what I would say about veteran health. The University of South Florida in Tampa is literally across the street from James Haley VA. There's a little bridge that goes over the street. And so when you think about that, you are in the shadow of one of the large institutions, but also the number of veterans who live in that state. And we were, I'm trying to remember, we were revising one of the programs. We talked about a veteran course, and there were folks in the room because we also had the VA Nursing Academy. So we had a handful of faculty out of that partnership with us. And so we sat in a room and we literally drew up the introduction to uh, military and veteran healthcare course right there in that room. And then I looked at Alicia and I said, and you're gonna teach it (laughs) and develop it. There was some pieces. And so we developed, it was online. There were a number of pieces. 
there were a lot of lessons learned in that course. But then also, I'm trying to remember how we it got to the creating the, the veteran program, but there was a call out out of HRSA to develop the veteran to bachelor of science program. And I'm going to stop there before I talk about what we did, because it'll, I want to give Alicia some time, but um, that's really how we met. But then Alicia really um, is what I would call, um, while she may have been bred in the DC area, she is a Florida, a Southern woman. And so she really knows how to show you the sights and sounds of, uh, of Southern Florida and Tampa. And so out of that grew an incredible uh, friendship as, uh, and really, I would say, heartfelt collegial commitment and passion for veteran um, that, as you can see, transcended even though I've been here at Hopkins now for over five years. That, that's amazing. Um, uh, Dr. Rossiter. So yes, um, I will just, you know, add on to what uh, Rita uh, mentioned. Um, so yes, we, I started at USF in 2011. And one of the things I think I was one of the very few, one of probably two faculty members um, that had a military background that had served in the military. So um, as Dr. As Rita said, um, we are across the street from James A. Haley VA. We are nine to 10 miles away from McDill Air Force Base, which is home of CENTCOM and SOCOM. And we are about 25 miles away from Bay Pines, which is over in the St. Pete area. So, and as you know, Florida has the third largest veteran population in the country. So we see um, and are engaged with veterans in our everyday life, not only in our you know, personal lives here in, in Tampa, but also in the care that we provide patients. Um, so that really kind of set the stage when I arrived. Um, I like to say that we were joining forces before joining forces was cool. Um, but if timing was everything, it was perfect because um, as Rita said, when I started here at USF, I hit the ground running with the development of the Introduction to Military and Veteran Health course. I think we were only one of two um, universities in the country that had a Military and Veteran Health course. Um, BYU was the other one. Um, so we hit the ground running at about the time that we, you know, uh, our military and veteran health course started, um, we joining forces happened with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden. And that just really was set the stage for everything I think that we did moving forward. Um, it opened up the funding, as Rita said, for uh, a VBSN, a veteran to BSN program, uh, which was our next collaboration uh, together. Um, you know, a lot of work was done, a lot of groundwork was done prior to that grant and looking at the needs of medics and corpsmen. Um, we knew that that was um, going to be a significant issue. Um, the, some of the data that we had looked at was, um, you know, the, the high numbers of veterans who um, were leaving the military and were un, or underemployed. Um, so like I said, that really kind of set the stage for our partnerships. Um, as Rita said, I'm sure that we'll talk more about the VBSM program in another question, uh, but that really set the stage for our collaboration together. That really has transcended, um, you know, her moving to another university, the passion was still there. So even though we're not together um, in the, at the same institution anymore, um, it really kind of set the stage for, you know, for our book and our work together. And once again, as Rita mentioned, thank you so much for your contribution. Your the two chapters that you you know led really are the foundation of the book. You know, knowing what a veteran is, 
um, what services they are eligible for, um, you know, what brings them to the VA or could potentially is a barrier to them getting to the VA. So thank you very much for that contribution. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation. It was unexpected. And as soon as you reached out, I was like, yes, yes, I'm going to. So. This is the power of Twitter. So uh, literally, uh, we don't know each other. We've never met. I think I found you uh, through somebody on Twitter. Um, so this is the power of social media. Um, and, you know, fast forward, I think about a year now, uh, the three of us are connected and we're doing doing a podcast with you. Yeah, so. I, yeah I, I always like, you know, networking. I always tell my students like network, 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 uh, yeah. however you can. And uh, it, if there's one or two things positive out of the pandemic that happened was it really got me to think about networking outside of conferences yeah. and, and meetings uh, and where, you know, things like Twitter has really, you know, kind of blown up uh, the networking process for me anyway, and I'm sure for some other people as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things I did not mention was the uh, impact of the, the VANA and the VANA partnership out of the VA Academy. So that came, initiative came out of Central uh, VA. And what it was, was an approach to, to do a couple of things. One was to increase the recruitment and the education of nurses, um, of taking positions working in the VA. But the other piece that we found along the way was providing access and on all of those. There were a lot of assumptions and myths on both sides. So first of all is because you work in the VA is that you knew veteran health versus you know the care of this kind of patient. And as well, um, what the academic partner could offer in terms of teaching about simulation um, we actually uh, provided the training for someone who, who at the time was out of VA, now heads the simulation out of Virginia Commonwealth University. And, but there were a number of pieces what we found um, about students um, not wanting to go into the VA, not seeing it as a favorable. It was, you know, like, oh, really? I got, I, I'm going to go to the VA for my clinical. And so that VANA partnership really taught us what folks really don't know about each other on both sides of the fence and what it takes. And I think that's what really then started leading us to the selective, the, um, the veteran healthcare. And one of the skills I have is developing curricula. Hmm. I can, um, and so it was harnessing the natural talents and expertise of folks and then showing how you put it into a course that is not only uh, rigorous, but has true learning and academic credits. And so that was one of the pieces. And so the idea is what I call dosing. You could learn about veteran care, okay, but you don't have a clinical experience. You can then have a clinical experience and you get an additional dosing. Well, what if you now have faculty who teach in the, your programs who are out of the VA, you have clinical experiences there and you have a separate course. And that is really what we tried coming out to that is we wanted a, an option, sort of like a cafeteria that someone could just take part or all, but we wanted just about every nurse coming out of that uh, the, the pre-licensure program with basic knowledge about veteran because you can't work 
in the state of Florida and not hit into veteran health care. Right. Right. I, I agree. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, um, kind of what what has happened to the veterans sort of education, because there was in, in like around 2010, 2011 is where, where it really we saw some movement on a push from a nursing side, from a funding side for these programs to kind of come into existence. Uh, but actually I had a, a student uh, this past year who was in the honors college and she, she had to do some, she had to do a, a thesis project. And I had her look into like the top 100 schools, nursing schools in the, in the, in the US and see how many of them actually incorporated veterans topics into their coursework, whether undergraduate or graduate. And she came out with like a handful. So most schools are not covering veterans healthcare, even though we have about 20 million veterans out there, more than half of them are getting their care on the civilian side. And the other 10, you know, about nine or 10 million that are getting care in the VA, they're not getting all their care in the VA. So we know from a civilian perspective, we're all touching veterans in our healthcare systems, we just don't know it. So what happened to that sort of push from like both like nursing organizations, I know the NLN came out with some stuff, the AACN came out with some stuff. I know the American Academy of Nursing came out with its, uh, have you ever served in the military campaign? Uh, right around, I think it was right around that time perhaps, uh, but what happened to that big push and what happened to these programs? Because I know, like I said, there's only a handful that are really engaged in this. Yeah, Dr. Osser, do you want to start with that one? Sure. I think um, obviously, you know, over the years, um, uh, priorities have shifted. Um, we know that we have a national, you know, a major nursing shortage looming, um, and then COVID hit. So we've had a lot of things happen over the last, you know, eight years in regards to how we've had to transition nursing education. Um, and what I 100% agree with you, we are, we are seeing, or I'm sorry, veterans um, upwards to about 75% are being seen in the civilian sector. And or the 9 million who are receiving care in the VA are also receiving care uh, in the civilian sector for specialty care and other, um, other issues. So it's critically important that we are educating nurses and advanced practice nurses to care for these patients in the civilian sector. Um, the, we know with the Mission Act and the Choice Act, or the Choice Act, and then followed on by the Mission Act, um, that that has even opened the door for more veterans to be seen. However, there is a lack of um, education of providers to meet that need that they're seeing um, in their clinics, their hospitals, their practices. And many of these providers are seeing uh, patients, and they lack the knowledge and understanding. Um, of their, their service-connected issues. Um, they're not educated. They don't know how to screen for uh, service-connected disabilities. And many of them lack the knowledge of resources available in their community. So if there's one thing that I can impress upon anyone who is going out into you know, a clinic or a facility or a hospital, just simply asking the question, have you ever served? Acknowledging that individual's military service. Um, knowing, and, and the second most important thing is even if you don't know yourself how to provide that care, know who your resources are, know how to connect that individual um, with a VA uh, clinic or facility in your area. I think those are probably the two most important things that we need to, um, to you know, educate our nurses and nurse advanced practice nurses um, 
in regards to veteran health care. And then for the universities that are, you know, the handful that you mentioned, God bless them that they are incorporating those uh, veteran competencies because, you know, I, until I think moving forward as a nursing um, nursing organizations, we need to be developing those competencies um, for care for veterans, just like any other underserved population that we see in our communities. It is critically important that we have um, those competencies, um, that we develop those competencies, and we're using them in our clinical practice. Okay. So, if I could add to that. So one of the things you had asked before, and I'll share it at this point, was what really got me into this. So first of all, um, even before Florida, I was uh, still am at the same clinic, a nurse practitioner serving the non-insured. And so you see uh, individuals with transitory employment. Again, breaking, these are not all homeless individuals. These are folks who are working, transitory employment, other things. And coming in substance use, um, anxiety, depression disorders, other things, I just started saying, what's going on here? And so I asked the question, so tell me about yourself and you know, pulling more. And I found out there was this common thread and they all had prior service. Well, what they got to me was, oh my, my husband had served two tours in Vietnam with significant Agent Orange exposure. I have not shared this. One of the pieces is our firstborn was, as an infant was diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia, which is very rare in children, much less firstborn. And at that time, they were looking into the effects of Agent Orange. And I had such incredible guilt, like, oh, my, did I do this? I can't tell my husband because he's going to feel guilty that and all this. And what it really did was bring to me between those two pieces what we don't know about the impact of service that while the majority of individuals, veterans do live, especially if they're retired in California, Texas, and Florida, that's not where they all are. They're all over the country in areas that do not have the VA looming over you or any of those pieces. And even when we moved here and with this retract, you know, the significant hypertension, all these, I said, he served in Vietnam and the vet and the physician looked at me like, well, yeah, so what? Yeah, well, that's nice. Thank you for your service. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> Can we just tell you the impact on cardiac? Can we tell you the impact of these? And what it really says is that we will talk about occupational assessment. We will talk about occupational risk. The folks don't think about military service or when it's further down the line, what that impact will be. So what, to me, as a provider, as a family member, and then, you know, others sending pictures, well, you know, what is this? Is we've got to do a better job. As you said, 20 million veterans. We went from 22 veteran suicides a day down to 17, and they are occurring in the civilian sector of individuals who do not belong to the VA, who don't know how to access it. And we've got to do a better job because there's also screening. Have you ever served? I can't say enough about, absolutely. But it's not enough. It is not enough. And I think that's where I think you and I were on the same page in that chapter is you can go to the VA and are you a veteran, how to apply. And then when you get your rejection notice, well, I guess I don't apply. 
versus what do you have to do? As I say to folks, it's applying to social security for disability. Of course, 96% of the time you're gonna get rejected. Okay, then what do you do? So I think that's the piece is not only, yeah, let me screen, yeah, oh, you know, putting these two things together based on either the service, whether you were deployed, if you were in certain areas with uh, contamination from chemicals, whether it's in the groundwater, whether it's in other places, what do you do? And that's the issue to me is, yes, this may be connected. How do I know? How do you go to the VA site and say, yeah, it, it could be either presumptive, presum probable, here are the conditions. But then even sending them to the VA enough is not enough to be a, you know, a, determina a disability determination. You'll get rejected and then you'll go. So that's the piece for me. It's more. Um, and there are individuals who come from the military focus because they've served. There are individuals who come from within the VA sphere and they will understand VA. And then there are individuals who will come from the civilian sector or the policy sector. But we need individuals who understand all three. You can't take care of a veteran and not understand military service. And I had someone who came to me who completed a, a is doctorally prepared. And I asked this question about him as he was looking at things. And I said, well, do you understand the military culture? And he's looking at transition. He goes, no. I said, well, you can't take, talk about veterans and not understand military culture, just as military cannot talk about understanding veteran service if they only know the VA in terms of healthcare. So you could see my voice rose with that. And that <laughs> Well, I appreciate the the passion that's gone that's gone into this, and I agree. Like from a VA perspective, uh, from even my personal experience, I can say I've gone and sought care, and I'm not a VA user. I was, you know, I've always had private insurance. I've always used the civilian sector, and I and I still remember the one time the physician said, "Well, you should take care of this at the VA." I'm like, "Do you know how long it's going to take for me to get it? You know, not only get an appointment." get seen, have this, I'm already in your office, but it's, it shows that huge disconnect that there's an assumption that military, if you are in the military at any point in your life, VA is, is really quick, get you seen to get you taken care of. And that's it. And that's not necessarily the case. Dr. Rossiter. I was going to add to that. You know, I think really that's why um, this book was created. We saw some of the gaps in um, nursing education and really that's why we developed this book. And we're really hopeful that um, this book will serve as part of a tool in every healthcare provider's toolkit um, on really how you can address care before, during and after transition um, into, in, out of the military to really help support those gaps in services and care that our veterans are receiving both in and outside of the VA and really to help improve health outcomes in this patient population. I really um, truly believe uh, that mitigating that gap from uh, between services and supports when that individual is serving in the military to support and services in the civilian sector is critically important because this is where we see our veterans drop off. This is what leads to the high rates of homelessness, unemployment, and suicide is those gaps in services and support during um, and after transition. So if we can, 
you know, if we are armed with the tools and these toolkits to help support our veterans until we can get them either into the VA or into some other um, healthcare um, agency, I think we can eliminate many of the um, negative outcomes that are, we're seeing with our veteran population. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, now, from from uh, uh, I want to get a little bit into uh, into the how how you um, put this book together. But before we get into that, um, how did where do you think from a nursing? Where is where is nursing? Where does the responsibility lie in the world of nursing uh, when we talk about veterans' healthcare? Because from an educational perspective. Um, um, like from or a policy perspective, we're not really seeing anything from a, um, any of the accrediting bodies really pushing this right now, or or including it. And you know, uh, from it being in an education in a in an in academic institution, uh, we are very much geared towards what are they looking, what are the accrediting bodies looking at, and that's what I need to have in my program. Uh, is there a responsibility for these accrediting bodies within the world of nursing? to include veterans, and I'm, and I'm talking to a bias group, uh, but <laughs> to include veterans health, because we talk about diversity and I, I'm hoping we see a lot more diversity included into academia where we're touching the different groups, but veterans is not always seen as a subpopulation that needs, that that is underserved. We, just because you know, a, a lot of times the defaults, oh, the VA is taking care of veterans. And that's really not the case. For, for a majority of veterans. So where do you think the responsibility lies on nursing, nursing um, institutions and regulatory bodies within the world of nursing when it comes to veterans healthcare? Dr. Rosser, do you wanna kick this one off? Sure, so I always, I personally feel that nursing is really on the, on the front lines of providing care for veterans. And I have been a staunch supporter for many, many years of including um, uh, continuing education, requirements for nursing licensure and certification. Um, our veteran population is probably one of the, the most diverse populations um, out there. We, um, you know, multicultural, very diverse population. They are very reflective of the communities that we serve all across the country. Um, so once again, they do have unique healthcare needs that need to be addressed and what you don't know can hurt them. So I, like I said, I've been a staunch supporter of developing um, veteran competencies. Reed and I have worked on that uh, together, um, setting the stage for veteran competencies. And um, my hope is that at some point in time in the very near future, that this will be part of nursing curricula across the country, um, not only in undergraduate programs, but in our advanced practice programs. And once again, um, just like we, you know, with um, human trafficking and other things that are licensure requirements, my hope is at some point in time, we will see that included um, in license renewal and certification renewal um, for those. There is no one out there who has not touched a veteran at some point in their career. So it behooves us to know how to uh, adequately and appropriately care for those who have served in harm's way. We owe it to this, to this generation and not only to our veterans, but to our military families. Uh, military service is a family business. Right, right. If we disenfranchise our military spouses and our military children, we have lost the next generation of sailors, um, soldiers, airmen, and Marines. 
So we, we need to start looking at military service um, from a family perspective and not silo the service member, the spouse and the military child. We need to be providing holistic care to that entire military family. It's a matter of national defense, really. We're significantly decreasing the number of um, recruits that are, are going into the military. We already know that there's a whole set of, subset of the American population that's not even eligible for military service, but you've got a high number, two thirds in a recent survey in military times, two thirds of military connected children want to go into the military and follow in their parents' footsteps. But once again, we're not meeting their needs either. Right. So moving forward, these competencies, the, uh, this education needs to be in all nursing curricula in every uh, college of nursing across the country. Great. Thank you. Dr. Doss? With my curriculum hat and regulatory, um, if you look at the nursing profession, just trying to get gerontology and geriatric content into curricula <laughs> with an aging And so one of the pieces is that if you look at how criteria are written, whether they're the essentials, the new revised essentials, or if you look at the accreditation requirements, whether out of you know, uh, medicine, nursing, physical, any of these, they're broadly written about, can you care for you know, the populations, but you don't really get into that level of detail. And I think that, and, but where do you see it? It's not gonna come out of that. It's gonna come out of licensing and certification exam because that should be reflecting the work analysis. And work analyses are usually completed every five years. Based on the work analyses is the role delineation study and is the blueprint then for both the pre-license for the RN licensure and then the, the certification exam. In terms of the, the organizations, um, you know, that's a different kind of a question because you will say who's holding the roles and what are the sources of their support, both in terms of their member organizations and philanthropic. And so those, that's a reality to me and what they're going to, and what will happen. The Jonas Foundation, the, Jonas, the, uh, the Veteran and Nursing Foundation made a significant impact. And they really have, just as the VA, the, the Vanna Nursing Academy did. But those typically are pilot monies. They start up five, 10 years, then they'll say, okay, how are you gonna sustain it? Um, you know, and so it goes. I do know the National League for Nursing is interested in um, having continuing education about veteran care and veteran competencies. When we talk about veteran competencies, um, until we came out with a book, they weren't even identified as veteran competencies. We started this and it was actually uh, a study that was coming out of the Vanna group about what these competencies or these areas are. And then in our book, we quote a, a few studies that came out of the provider level, but there really has not. And it was more what I would say is fundamental about what are you seeing? What are these pieces? But other than the screening card, we have not come out with saying what these are and what should be done. And that was the hope of the book. Um, so not only how, what's that impact, um, but what, how do you screen? What are the resources? 
As someone once said to me, the physical burden is easy to see. It's the ones that aren't seen that can be difficult. And so, or you don't disclose, or it's not going to be a service-connected disability. And those are the ones, you know, that we really need to start taking a look at. Um, you know, uh, Deborah Grassman uh, wrote a fantastic chapter on end-of-life issues. And so, in particular, that veteran, that Vietnam veteran, first of all, will never even tell you they served. And they have repressed everything. What, what population now is facing end of life and with all those unresolved conflicts. And so those are the pieces that we have to think about. Um, my last thing is when we talk about military service, there are folks who are career, there are individuals who sign up, one to our duty and they're done and then they're reservists. And they're all very different. So while it's all military, the needs are very unique in these groups. Yeah, very true. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a there's a difference in the needs whether you're you you served as uh, as an officer versus enlisted. There's a lot of those nuances that we don't uh, we don't always see or we don't necessarily know about. So I appreciate that. Um, now, from a from another perspective, looking at this from another perspective, do you see the movement really have really being more uh, like from the ground up approach where, where it's more grassroots uh, as far as veterans education within institutions or within uh, let's say conferences. Uh, like, you know, sometimes I see veterans specific topics at, at conferences and other times I do not. Uh, do you think uh, it, it would be, where should we spend our energy? If somebody's listening to this podcast and they wanna spend their energy somewhere, where do you think some changes can occur where it doesn't require a national overhaul of, of, a, of, a, of a policy or regulation or accreditation or anything like that? I think the different nursing, age, uh, you know, nursing agencies have done a good job. I know going back when I, so I, I started in academia in 2011. So um, when I first started, once again, that was part of joining forces, there were not a lot of conferences that focused on military and veteran healthcare issues. So fast forward with um, the you know, hundreds of nursing organizations that signed on to the joining forces uh, pledge. I think that really opened up a lot of opportunities for um, individuals who had expertise in military and veteran health to present at conferences, you know, NLN, American Academy of Nursing, uh, American Association of Nurse Practitioners, they all have multiple, you know, a- arenas where you can present on military and veteran health issues. Go ahead, Rita, take it. Um, I think one of the pieces is, if I were to be honest, I would say there's um, periodic interest out of the, or, uh, out of the groups. But I think that reflects other kinds of priorities that will come through. So whether it's a pandemic, whether it's issues of health equity, diversity, you know, DEI right now, and other components, there are other things that will percolate to the top or, or other components. However, um, what I would say is for folks is you cannot look at primary care and you cannot look at behavioral health and not think veteran. Hands down, you can't do it. Um, Alicia briefly alluded to, you know, the Choice Act and then the Mission Act. And then you look at, well, 
what's stopping it? Why hasn't it gone more? You know, first it was trying to get the appointment, trying to get the approval. Then it was the billing and trying to clearing that up. But I took a group of doctoral students to the Hill. And so we had a visit with the, uh, the subcommittee on veteran health. And, and we had the opportunity to meet with Christine Hill, who was one of the architects to the Mission and Choice Act. And she heard from these students who are NPs because these were postmasters, doctoral students, that you can't provide care because you're in these, so in uh, certain of the states in the Southwest, they contract with the urgent cares to provide that care for the, the veterans, but you have no records. Well, through their stories, that was purely coincidental, she was able to then go in and mitigate these barriers that occur. And so when it comes to veteran health, there's this interplay between not just nursing, but I'm gonna say my, my colleagues in medicine and in particular behavioral health and physical therapy as well. Um, I cannot talk about healthcare and not include them when we talk about these. But if you're looking at what they're trying to do, It'll come in these groups. It'll come out of the VA, I think, as they push for services. Um, but if you've been to one VA, you've been to one because the VA in, at the other end of the state is going to be completely different. And so, the, and then you look at um, our congressional leader because it's an oversight committee. So I think it's going to be a, all of these groups really coming together. But the other group that we have not paid attention to are the veteran organizations. And those veteran organizations are the ones who legally can represent the veterans in their claims or in other things. So if you look at the, uh, the American Legion um, and the other groups, those are really powerful blocks that will influence policy. But for us in nursing, um, I would say, yes, there's a commitment. Is it the strongest commitment? Perhaps not. Is because there are other competing kinds of things that they have to face. But there isn't one individual that I've talked to in any organization that is not committed to veteran health and veteran care. One of the they might be more a transition from veterans leaving service to what kind of employment, what are your education? but there are its interests. The other thing too, I'll add to that, Ali, I remember going back several several years ago, sitting at an NLN conference and they were talking about, uh, I think veter the veteran simulations that they had developed. And Rita stood up and made a comment and talked about my role as the College of Nursing Military Liaison at the time. And I'll never forget a woman turned around and said, wow, you guys value uh, nursing faculty who have served in the military, I would never tell someone I'd served in the military. And I thought how sad that was. You know, how sad that this is such an underutilized population, not only in nursing education, but also in nursing practice. Um, these are the champions. These are the people who, you know, have walked the walk and taught the talk and can really engage with our veteran and service member population and how underutilized and underrepresented they are and undersupported that they are. So find out who those champions are um, in your you know, facility, um, in your institution, and, and use them to help educate you know, the next generation of nurses, the next generation of providers and practitioners um, on how to support veterans um, that they are caring for. 
Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, and so many universities, I hate to even say it this way, so many universities don't know they have, like they may have had like an extra point on their hire. When they got hired, they got a check mark in the box when they got hired, but nobody ever follows up after that. And that's the problem, I think, with even hospitals and clinics and, oh, like we're, we're veteran friendly, we'll hire veteran like nurses or doctors or whatever that are veterans. And then that's kind of where the where the everything kind of stops like they do nothing else to try to retain or understand the veteran populations that they've hired and that's where you have some veterans that actually leave institutions because they run into issues and i'm um, gonna throw myself in that in that in that bowl of soup too yeah. you know, i think that pendulum has swung over the last eight years you know like i said I, i'm seeing more and more um you know especially at my university and you know just in the general population when i'm out presenting and stuff i think that pendulum has swung to the opposite way where we are now being appreciated and acknowledged for our military service and the expertise and knowledge that we can bring um to the profession um, mm. from that military perspective into the civilian sector so i do think you know things have improved over the last you know 10 or 11 years since I started, um, which makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, um, one of the pieces we talk about the veteran, but that's not the only agent of change in developing competency and competency-based care. And so one of the pieces is the mentoring of, for me, as doctoral students who hold pos leadership positions within veteran care, whether the VA or other places. And um, I just got a text message from somebody I mentored who, um, a Jonah Scholar, and now is gonna be the uh, senior director for uh, clinical uh, palliative care services at Adana Farber. Well, who do you think is going to be coming through those doors? Or my student now, director of emergency services in, Hawaii, in one of the Hawaii hospitals or the person in charge of quality out of the VA, another one out of uh, the ethics committee out of the VA. And so I think we have to start also thinking, and Alicia alluded to this with uh, the continuing education and also recertification and relicensure, is not just in the education program, the formal, but we have to look at continuing ed and also taking the expertise, including yourself, Ali, and mentoring the leaders um, who are in these organizations to develop the programs and to think about how to move the staff, how to look at quality, safety and quality measures. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100%, 100% agree on this. Um, so uh, I do want to I do want to talk about the book. I don't want to leave the book out. Uh, uh, so I kind of got the, got the idea of how the book kind of uh, you thought about the book because it was it was it, there was a need and there was a gap in the information but how did that collaboration how did that first conversation happen well go ahead Rita well you know once again had a brief sketch of some competencies and really we just sat down with our expertise expanded and put together what we thought were the areas and the chapters in a book and really kind of peddled that idea initially to one or two publishers and got, oh, thank you very much. Don't call us, we'll call you. And then we went to one and we got a call back. So of course we send our chapter outlines, you know, our prospectus. We had a reply back, they had 27 external reviewers, expert reviewers looking at this to say, 
is this needed? Do they have everything? And so Alicia and I were just kind of blown away. It's like, oh gosh. And they all came out, every single one. It was a matter of strongly, some said um, there, or it was uh, agree, but the vast majority strongly agreed this is critical. And by the way, could you include these other items? Mm. And I think that for us said, yeah, this is, this is it. The folks, somebody does get it, right. but 27, do we really <laughs> need 27 reviewers? <laughs> and so then, uh, so I do credit Jones and Bartlett uh, for taking that and not only in terms of sales, but in terms of need. And that's what the 27 reviewers were doing was establishing need. And it is the first textbook out there or book that really talks about healthcare for veterans and families. Right, right. Dr. Rossiter? Yeah, I agree with Rita. Um, we, we thank you so much to Jones and Bartlett for taking this project on. And uh, as Rita said, I think they were stunned by the number of reviewers. Um, so obviously we know that there's a need. And I always refer back, I, you know, Rita and I have been doing this for a long time. Uh, we refer to ourselves as Thelma and Louise because we traveled all over this country um, with two of our grants, our veteran related grants, uh, visiting, you know, multiple military installations across the country, VAs, we consult with, you know, universities across the country in regards to developing veteran to BSM programs. So we had a lot of time to, to talk about, you know, this, this topic. Um, over the years. And once again, I, you know, thank, thank you to Jones and Bartlett for taking us on um, and, and really investing in uh, this work, because I do think it's so important. And I always tell people, my light bulb moment was uh, a night that I was sitting in a hotel room getting ready to do a presentation um, on caring for veterans in the civilian sector. And someone sent me an article in JAMA uh, called The Unasked Question. And I remember relating to the author um, who did an editorial uh, about the fact that no one had ever asked him and his, he was a Vietnam veteran, uh, physician in Vietnam and had no one, no one had ever asked him in his entire life had he served in the military and how that impacted his overall mental and physical health um, that he didn't realize until much later on in life. And I sat back and I thought, wow, I, no one's ever had ever asked me either. And, you know, we're healthcare providers and we probably never thought about asking any of our patients at the time either. Um, and, you know, once again, I related to him, like how could my disclosure of, you know, my experience in the military and my exposures in the military have changed my physical and psychological health at this point. And I, I you know, I know if I was thinking this and he was thinking this, there are millions of veterans across the country. So once again, bring it back to the book, it's so important that as healthcare providers, we're asking that question, have you ever served? And if that individual says no, you move on into your, the rest of your, your patient visit. But if not, it's so important to address those issues and really listen to that veteran because you might be the first person to ever ask him that question. So hopefully this book will help um, eliminate those gaps in knowledge and comfort level from once you ask that question to the care, the screenings and the re referrals and resources that you provide that patient in the end. So hopefully, like I said, the book will, will mitigate those gaps and help providers feel you know, more comfortable um, in, in providing culturally competent care to this unique population. 
That's a great point. Now, now really, now you you mentioned something on comfort level. Do you think uh, uh, this has to do with how comfortable people are having that discussion with the veterans when they when they do you think they're not asking or well for most people I think it's not even in their in the they're not even necessarily thinking about it but the ones that are thinking about it do you think it has to do with how comfortable they are with what if they say yes now what so, I yeah. do with it <laughs> yeah so there was actually there's actually been a couple studies out there um Frederick is the one that comes to my mind uh, from Ohio who actually has done, and like I said, there's a couple of studies out there looking at knowledge and comfort level. Um, the one that Dr. Frederick did was primarily with um, physicians in the state of Ohio. And his findings showed that the majority of providers felt, agreed that they felt uncomfortable and unprepared to care for veterans in their practice. Um, so we know that that is an issue. Um, and like I said, there's a couple other studies that, you know, uh, corroborate that those findings as well. So we know it's an issue. And when we know something's an issue, it behooves us to do something about it. Right. So, you know, to first do no harm, we need to make sure that we are doing no harm. So educating yourselves, if you don't, if there's not a availability of a course or, you know, um, educational, you know, initiatives in your program, find that information. There's a wealth of information. Uh, there's multiple websites out there, um, you know, our book, there's multiple ways that you, the Center for Deployment Psychology has a whole host of uh, mini webinars that you can listen to, um, to help educate yourself. So, you know, there's no longer an excuse. You got to go out there and educate yourself on this patient population. Uh, Great point. Dr. Doss? Um, there are a couple of pieces for me um, that to me were defining moments. Um, one of them is uh, my first dean and first boss was Loretta Ford. And hell of an, uh, an impact. She is an Army Air Force veteran. And both her and her husband is now deceased, Bill. But veterans were taught never to apply for care or unless leave it for the boys who need it is, was the term at that time. And other components, um, but then when they needed it, it wasn't available to them because they hadn't signed up for benefits or uh, other components. And that really made me realize that knowing about the care isn't enough. You have to know about policies. And, and I mean that um, in the strongest um, piece, but also um, I have not served. And so folks will say, what do you know? And even you know, when you talk about checking the boxes, and folks will say, okay, Veterans Day is coming up. Who are we going to have as the poster child, right? Um, and, and so I just chuckle because folks will not see me. And I'm going to wait now when the book comes out or other things of what we've done. But they don't. And so that implicit and explicit bias hurts us. And that also hurts us in that no matter how hard I try or any of those things, I am not like Alicia who was there and you know, serving in the Gulf War or on those humanitarian missions. I was not. And so we need to have increasing number of providers who have served because of that sensitivity. And there was a med student, I'll never get forget. He, had, um, he left the service, he flew the F-16s. And I like pilots because my uh, son-in-law is a naval aviator. However, 
and he was going to med school. And short story is he went to med school because his brother passed away in a tragic accident. So he's gonna fulfill his dream. It turns out my husband bought that car from the man's father, did not know it. But what the individual did is he brought to his entire medical school class about military service, about the culture and leadership and about other components. Like the individual um, Fredericks and others that we talk about, Best is another author and others uh, who've done research is you have to increase the diversity in the workforce. You have to equip them with the right skills, but equipping them there are studies, and we actually did a study, and it was with gerontology. You look at the three concepts of what do you know, how confident are you, and what's the value? And those three things are intricately related. And so when we talk about veteran care, if you don't know about it, you're not comfortable, you may not value it, you're not likely to teach it included it. And so we have to diversify, provide the education and training, and then also provide the uh, continuing education in the other arenas. So it's not any one attempt. And I don't think we can just wait for pockets of monies that'll come out periodically. It will, to me, be coming more from the ground movement up about how we're going to do this and why. That's uh, those are great points. Thank you for both for sharing that. Um, one last question for you. What, where do you hope or what do you hope to accomplish with the publication of this book? Where do you hope it ends up? Dr. Rossiter, do you want to take this? Uh, I cannot impress upon this enough. I hope it gets in the hands of every provider um, out there. Um, as I have mentioned numerous times in this uh, podcast, no one who cares for individuals in any community has not touched a veteran. So I'm hoping that uh, everyone uh, will take a look at our book and learn uh, what they need to know to provide culturally competent care for our service members, veterans, and their families. So the book does cover not just you know, the veteran population, but also um, you know, how to provide care and what, what kind of questions to ask um, military spouses, as well as military connected children. Um, so it's, it's a book that uh, crosses all age spans, um, concentrations, whether you're a pediatric nurse practitioner to acute uh, adult share of acute care nurse practitioners, um, as well as the you know other nurses, um, BSN prepared nurses um, who are working in hospital settings as well. Because no one uh, you will at some point in time you will care for a veteran um, or their family members or a caregiver. So that's our hope is that it will get into the hands of uh, anyone and everyone who is caring for patients. Great, thank you. Dr. Dost? I'm actually gonna to move to the policy side a little bit more and that everyone should know who their representatives are both in the state and at the federal level because the DOD and uh, the VA are two of the largest budgets and you can influence um, and so in terms of some of the policies and other pieces, right now we're seeing that at least for spouses, the temper, the waivers of what, you know, licensure within a state. So to make it easier that folks aren't paying a price for being a spouse, but also is really advocating for the health care 
whether it's in the uh, the military, the recent study came out, but also in within the VA, also advocating to improve access for veteran care. So it's not just the care, it's the access and the outcomes and how to start looking at that. Um, I hope in the future we could start looking at some outcomes, but there's so many barriers in place about trying to get data, who owns it, and um, who could even get a hold of the code book so we know uh, what we're looking at. But I think we have to um, do a couple of things. So first of all, Alicia's right, everyone should go out and buy the book today. Um, but that veteran care and veteran confidence should be included in all curricula. Uh, while it may not be a specific accreditation, it'll be in, it will be in your care. So I hope we start to see this now in licensing and certification. But we also need to become involved in policy. And it took me going to the state of Florida, at the time, one of the most restrictive states for nurse practitioners. And I said, what do you mean I can't do A, B, or C? And it took me getting totally incensed that I got involved in policy by someone who's a veteran, Gene Arker. And so um, what that did was really teach me that the silent voice will do nothing. So um, I would say policy. And I know that is near and dear to your heart by the passion I've seen in your work, especially with bad papers and other pieces, or what I call the blaming the victim, right. um, who does have uh, you know, a behavioral mental health issues and, and is no longer, or there was a case in, in Florida where uh, a mom unfortunately killed her two ch children and the dad senior officer is away and boy, what a bad mom. And I'm thinking, what do you mean bad mom? She had a mental health, but nobody, nobody dealt with it because don't tarnish his career. And I thought, boy, it was so many lives were destroyed. So policy, policy, as well as competency. And, and I'll just end with that, you know, 100% agree, Rita, policies where it at. We can do so much working from the bottom up, but we really need that leadership from the top down. Um, I actually have a couple legislators that I will be sending a copy of this book to um, who are, you know, to our true champions of veteran healthcare. Um, but we do need those changes in policy, um, not only in, you know, uh, education, but also bridging the VA and our active duty side, our, uh, you know, our, our military healthcare uh, system with the VA. So we don't lose those veterans once they, you know, cycle off of active duty or out of the reserve and national guard and into the veteran popular or veteran status. And then also, I cannot impress upon enough the need for um, research funding support, um, not only within our service member population and our veteran population, but once again, um, in what can we do better to serve our military families, our military spouses, and our military um, connected kids. So those would be my big asks in regards to policy, because um, policy is where it's at. We've got to have many. We've got we've got to have significant top-down changes to ensure that this population is being cared for appropriately. Great, thank you both. Holly, with your permission, yes. I, I would like to acknowledge some colleagues I have at Uniformed Service University. You know, they're just uh, down down the road, so to speak. Absolutely, because they have been wonderful collaborators with us. Um, 
at least not only when I was at USF, but even more so now here at Hopkins. And Diane Seibert, Heather Johnson, this uh, work with us along with uh, Catherine Link, who's now with us to develop a clinical competency model. And it really came out of those pieces. But I would say is we've got to learn to move beyond our little silo and what I call our little, um, you know, status and what I do and what I know and I'm going to you know go around and we need to learn to reach out we need to have special interest groups and special themes in every one of our organizations and you know when we start going to these so that at the conferences we can select and it's not just oh it's embedded in this kind of topic area and condition but do we have one just specifically for veteran care not to keep not to keep going back and forth but 100% agree as a former, uh, uh, I've served at Uniform Services University, instrumental in the success of, of you know, supporting our book. But also um, just to wrap up, we, Breed and I really, really wanna thank all of our contributors. I think we had 52 authors total um, in the, with this book. And without them, this book would not exist. Um, we took the best of the best or what we thought was the best of the best in critical areas within military and veteran health. So a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to this book. This book would not be what it is without them. So mm -hmm. thank you. And many of, many of them are veterans. Some of them are still uh, serving. Um, many work within the VA and you know several also work in the civilian sector. But to all of them, I want to wish each of them um, thank you so much for your service, and we honor you not only on Veterans Day, but every day. Great. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Doust, uh, thank you so much for your advocacy of the veteran population. Uh, Dr. Rossiter, thank you for your service and the work that you continue to do. Uh, uh, any last words before we sign off? No. Thank you for your service as well, um, Ali. And yeah. once again, it's a pleasure uh, going from a, you know, a, a tweet on Twitter uh, back <laughs> and forth to actually, you know, meeting you and we greatly appreciate, um, you know, your support. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I think what I would say is it's um, apropos that this book is coming out, Veterans Day. And so we do thank our veterans. We thank the families that support the veterans and the communities. And we also thank our policymakers who also look out. And it's important not to forget that because they're one of the very few bipartisan committees that exist. Um, let's hope they continue to exist as bipartisan. <laughs> so um, it's, it's, uh, it's appropriate that the book happened to come out. It, it's a, a labor of love is what we call it from Thelma and Louise. Great. Uh, thank you both. Uh, we have been listening to Dr. Brita Daus and Dr. Alicia Rossiter on the RN Mentor podcast. Uh, and I, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And we'll see you soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. 
Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.